0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard.
1: Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is a show that champions entrepreneurs right across the world, startups, startups, Early stage, in fact, all small businesses, and we are heard right around the world at the same time every week. So don't miss us. I guess the most rewarding part of doing this show every week is the fantastic feedback we get from you, the listeners, and the fact that I get to meet and interview some of the most exciting people on the planet. And uh, by Working on the show, I learn a lot as well. So thanks for making us the number one business show in the world for entrepreneurs. I, for one, really appreciate it. There was an interesting comment from Larry Ellison on CBS News today when he said that he thinks Apple will collapse without Steve Jobs at the helm. Ellison said that Jobs was brilliant and compared him to iconic creators such as Thomas Edison, for example. When asked about Apple's future, Ellison said, well, we know what happened last time Jobs left. The company collapsed. So now the company's as good as dead. When Jobs was alive, there was always the big vision. Now the company just tinkers around the edges. And uh, I've been reading a lot of blogs today about this, and a hell of a lot of people agree. There's an interesting blog from Andreas Goldie, who's a serial entrepreneur with impressive credentials, who was an Apple fanatic, and he said that minutes after installing the iOS 7 beta, he knew he had to switch to Android. He said Google Maps then replaced Apple Maps, Gmail replaced Apple Mail, Chrome replaced Safari, he did voice search through Google search app, not through Siri, and so on and on. He said when Apple came out, With the original iOS, it was years ahead of everyone. Now, it's simply paying catch-up. A hell of a lot of people agree with him. So, is Apple dead? And if it is, what the hell are they going to do with all those stores? Now, strategy analytics um, showed that global tablet shipments reached 51.7 million units in the second quarter of 2013, with Android securing a very strong 67% share. Apple dropped back to 28%, but Apple wasn't alone, of course. Windows also declined, falling back to 4.5% global market share. So it's universally agreed that Apple really needs to do something spectacular to entice the market again. And it's got to be visionary stuff. All we hear about, well most of the rumours, concern the iPhone 5S and the iPhone 5C. It's suggested that the plastic 5C will come in a wide range of great colours. Well that's hardly innovative, it's cute, but it's hardly innovative. And the buzz about the 5S suggests it will include a fingerprint scanner on the home button for login authorisation, and it will also have improved voice and camera features. Well... You know, still an iPhone. There are also rumours that the iPhone 5S will have a gold colour option. Wow! (laughs) Jesus. Up to now, Apple's had the Henry Ford approach. You can have it in any colour you want, as long as it's black or white. On September the 10th, we'll find out whether they intend to follow Henry Ford and offer the iPhone in a range of great colours. Personally, I hope they do but it is hardly groundbreaking and it certainly won't um, satisfy the critics. In another announcement this week, placed the leader in location and analytics, confirmed that they'd surpassed 100,000 active opt-in mobile panelists with nearly 100 million locations measured daily. 100 million. In the last six months, Place has seen both its panel and daily locations increase by more than 200%. Place has now measured and processed more than 20 billion location data points, enabling them to provide an unbelievably comprehensive view of consumers' offline activity. They more than triple the amount of raw locations that flow through their models each day, and this is extraordinarily valuable to customers who are now able to better understand the behaviours of their customers. So we've come a hell of a long way from putting an ad in the newspaper, crossing your fingers and hoping like hell that the phone rings. nearly 20% of all Facebook posts of the interbrand top 100 brands now incorporate clickable hashtags. You might remember this was brought in by Facebook only about eight weeks ago. And this represents a rapid adoption. The top performing content, of course, is photos, accounting for 74% of brand posts on Facebook and 95% of total engagements. Photos posted by the top brands averaged more than 9,500 engagements per post. Videos were second with more than 2,500 engagements per post, So it looks like brands have recognized the power of visual content as photos and videos combined account for more than 80% of brand posts. Now, while status updates, that lags quite a long way behind photos and videos, they do rank third. However, the longer a status update is, the less engagement it receives. And if it happens to be less than 50 characters i.e. it's too short, then it also has a much lower engagement rate. And just to demonstrate how important Facebook now is to brands, 98% of brands have a fan page, and over 60% post every single day. And the interbrand 100 top brands average over 7,000 engagements per post. And folks, it's only just beginning. So if you're not fully utilising the online tools that are now available, then you, no matter how, I don't care how big your business is, you are going to fall behind. Because what's critical to remember is that I told you about a presentation I went to a few weeks ago um, from Salam at um, Singularity University and he said that we're only about 1% into the technological revolution and that most of the 99% that we've still got to go is going to happen in the next 15 years or so. So the relationship between marketers and their potential customers is going to train, try that again, change dramatically. And if you're not keeping up with the curve now with 1% gone, then it's going to become more and more difficult as time progresses. Of course, the most popular online marketing tool is still the email, and according to Forrester Research, marketers will blast out 258 billion emails this year. That's 258,000 million emails, and that's an extraordinary jump of 63% on last year. However, While this is just an amazing statistic, I suspect that most companies are missing out on big opportunities to improve their targeting relevance and performance simply because they ain't doing it right. A survey of Fortune 1000 firms shows that well over half of them are still relying on past experience and gut feel to create their campaigns. And we all know how well that works. Remember, 95% of all advertising doesn't work. Astonishingly, only 11% are using data to support their decisions. Even more astonishing to me, anyway, is the fact that data ranked dead last with marketers on the list of available resources. Someone should tell these companies that the batch and blast technique is over. Messages today need to be highly targeted, and they've got to have custom content, or you will get ignored. So it's critical to delve deeper and deeper into customer data to make your communications much more relevant, precise, and with better predictability around buying outcomes. According to a center retail group, data-driven email campaigns, listen to this, this these are extraordinary figures, data-driven email campaigns increase open rates by 70%. They increase, increase click-through rates fifty five percent and they produce a 300% increase in dollars per email spent, and they create a 225% increase in conversion rate. They're amazing numbers, very difficult to argue with, and yet 60, 70, 80% of Fortune 1000 firms do not use data. Now, you can achieve these same results simply by identifying the most relevant types of customer data. And, you know, you think about it for a minute, and you've got to say that the bare minimum data that you need to know is email interaction, knowing where customers click within your email, as well as, you know, your open rates, your open links, clicks, customer conversions, all that sort of information. Easy to get, should know it. Secondly... Understanding the customer's web interaction data, such as how they browse the website. That'll show you what they're in the market for, what their priorities are, and therefore what kind of email campaigns are going to be the most effective in soliciting them. Thirdly, you'd think easy to get would be past purchase history, and that can be a predictor of the consumer's future <laughs> it can be a predictor of the consumer 's future purchases, enabling personalization of emails. Fourthly, profile preferences you 've still got to know stuff you know we would pass this, but it 's still important, such as location, age, gender that 's still all valuable information when you put all this together and then finally. You need to define segments based on this data. So you should also use triggered emails, you know, such as um, welcome emails, birthday wishes, repurchase reminders, you know, things like that. So you need constantly to refresh your consumer data as consumers are continually evolving. Last week we spoke about the ten to twenty entrepreneurs who approach me every day seeking funding and how most of them just have the most appalling material, you know, from an investor's perspective. It's all about them. It's pages of waffle that nobody wants to read, how important they are, what they did in kindergarten when they were growing up. You know, nobody gives a rat's ass about all that stuff. An investor simply wants to know what's in it for me, And what's the risk-reward ratio? You know, if I'm going to put in a lot to possibly get back a little and there's a big risk, I ain't going to do it. So one of the most critical elements, you know, when you're seeking investment is to make your first pitch very short and powerful to address the investor's issue, not focusing totally on you. You need the investor to read it and go, wow, I want to find out more about this. I'm going to chase them instead of them chasing me. But during the week, I received two absolute classics. The first one was five pages all with huge coloured print, and, you know, dreadful looking thing. Um, and the first page said that there were five questions that an investor was most interested in and they would answer them in this five-page document. Well, firstly, all five pages were Full of all this waffle about how wonderful the entrepreneur was and how wonderful the product is. And not one of the five questions that they said were important have been important in any of literally hundreds of investor meetings that I've ever been at. Then they went about answering two almost totally irrelevant questions. And then they stated that if the investor wanted to know any more, they would have to phone them. Jeez, who do these people think they are? Now, the clunk that you hear is that presentation hitting the trash bin. And the silence you hear is the potential investor not phoning. The second one was also weird. I got an inquiry from New Zealand. A woman with what appears to be a really good project sent me an email. And when I responded, she just flatly refused to believe it was me. So she sent me an email saying, I know it's not you. (laughs) Who the hell is it? Two emails later, after I'd given it my direct phone number, my Skype number, she still sends me emails saying she doesn't believe it's me. (laughs) Now, when you've got a project and you've got that level of paranoia, getting an investor is going to be difficult. Now, don't forget this program is all about you, the entrepreneur or the small business person that's looking for tips on how to be more successful. That's what we're here for. This show is totally dedicated to assisting entrepreneurs. So if you've got a question, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. You're listening to the number one show in the world for entrepreneurs, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and we're proud... They have listeners right across the world. So no matter where you are in the world, we thank you for listening. Now, of all the skills that human beings possess, I reckon the one that we're really appalling at is communication. We don't communicate well in the home. Governments can't, people in government can't communicate. We can't communicate in the workplace. So my guest today is Nikki Viscovi. She trains leaders right across the world, and she's a great bird. She just lives in Los Angeles, um, not very far from me. She's also an NLP trainer and a master practitioner, as you'd probably guess. So whether you're in business or merely want to communicate better with your spouse or your kids, this is an interview you don't want to miss. This is Bob Pritchard. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. And I will be back with you in just a short moment.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible?
1: Radio show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview people who've achieved great success and people that are making a big change in the world of business. One of the problems that we talk about on this program is the lack of training that business people receive, both at the top of the ladder and at the bottom of the ladder. Um, interesting looking at the figures about um, how many senior executives do any training whatsoever after they leave university it's about 9% so 91% of executives get no training in anything after they leave university and yet the world's changing dramatically and and there's a, a whole set of skills that we need that we don't get taught and there's no doubt in my mind that the the greatest problem that's facing the world right at the moment or throughout history is our inability to communicate well and it doesn't matter whether this communication takes place in the home or whether it's at the government level domestically and internationally or whether it's in the workplace in the main we are appalling communicators and the best leaders are great communicators the people that make a difference are great communicators the happiest families they're those who communicate and being An excellent communicator is not just having a great vocabulary, it's about understanding the other person's point of view, understanding what makes them tick, saying the right things in the right way at the right time, as my guest would say. Now, I don't think too many people would dispute the fact that, irrespective of your politics, Bill Clinton is a great communicator. And the same can be said for Jack Dorsey, who, as you know, co-founded Twitter, or um, Marissa Mayer the CEO of Yahoo, these people get things done, and they bring people along with them because of their ability to not only communicate, but to connect emotionally and motivate people. My guest today is Nikki Vescovi, who, incidentally, has spent quite a lot of time in Australia, and she is a very powerful communication expert who shows you how you can not only change your business and not only your business, but your whole business, but also your life. Nikki's trained some of the most powerful people in the world to be effective communicators. And uh, we've spoken on this program a lot about NLP, and not surprisingly, Nikki is a (laughs) neuro-linguistic programming trainer and a master practitioner. Although she's headquartered in Los Angeles, Nikki works with corporations... And different cultures right throughout the world. Now this is the bit I need to talk to her about. Nikki said she learned to be to master disaster after a whole family was hit by a drunk driver, a plane crashed into a front room, and a truck drove over the top of her car while she was in it. <laughs> this is why I chose to do this interview over the phone. I didn't want to be in the <laughs> same room with her just in case, you know. <laughs> Make, don't walk under any ladders. Hi, Nikki. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business.
2: Thanks, Bob. It's great to be with your your listeners today and to be with you. So, um,
1: There's so much stress and challenge in business today. Uh, so many people from the top of the corporate ladder to the bottom, they wake up every day confronted with the stress of simply surviving, whether if you're a CEO that's keeping your job or whether if, if you're not, it's paying your bills. It's just constant stress now you've suffered some pretty traumatic events um plane crash corporate layoffs divorce your whole family being run over by a drunk driver i don't mean to be laughing but (laughs) god's truth
2: yeah you seem remain
1: you know you're very positive how do you do it how can we really stop stress and and start living
2: yeah I think it's a really good question for us in the world we find ourselves in today, and the stress that we face isn't going to stop, obviously. Part of being alive is having that stress, so it's silly to say that stress is ever going to disappear. In fact, they, they once asked Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the book, The Power of Positive Thinking, about you know, where should I go if I want to get rid of stress, and he says, well, you really want to know. And the young gentleman said, yeah, I, I want to get rid of it. He said, well, well, then I'll take you where it is. And he actually took him to the graveyard. So I think we're all, we're all going to have it. It's part of our life. It's more of a question of how do we effectively deal with it and how do we use the stress to motivate us rather than having it hold us back or prevent us from doing the things we're capable of doing. So it's really about how do we perceive what's happening for us because people can see an event occur And some will say, oh, God, I'm so stressed by this. And others won't even find it stressful at all. In fact, in 29 years of training and working with individuals, I have actually found people who don't even see stress when something yeah. occurs, so and I'm sure you've seen that too, Bob. So it's really the ability to shift it in our mind's eye and see it from a different perspective and be able to analyze it differently. When when the plane crash happened for me, and I was I was actually a college student when when the plane crash happened. It literally I was asleep on a Saturday morning, and you can imagine on a Saturday if you're in college, yeah. Um, yeah. where you might have been the night before. Um, yeah. and so <laughs> probably had a really good time as I did, and it was a Saturday morning quite early in the morning, about 1044 actually when this occurred, and I'm asleep in bed completely out, the the room starts to shake, and it was in Ohio, and I thought, God, you know, it's an earthquake, and then I thought in my mind, God, this is Ohio, we don't have earthquakes in Ohio, so I started to actually fall back asleep, and then a few seconds later, there was this giant explosion, and I I was like, oh my God, and I, I was living with my sister at the time, so I thought, my sister, she must have blown the furnace or done something, so... I ran to the front door, the door that led from my bedroom into the front room. And as I opened the door, it was literally like opening um, an oven. And and when you open an oven when it's super hot, you can feel that heat you know, smack you in the face. And luckily, I mean, I'm fairly blind, so I couldn't see much. (laughs) But I could see that the whole front room was literally an inferno. And I had another roommate, and she's screaming, get out of here, get out of here. And um, I just grabbed a robe, a blue robe, threw it on. And luckily there was a back door because it was a two-story wooden complex. The people, what had happened is they picked up this plane nearby and they'd they'd taken off with the plane. And it literally landed in my front room um, and I was in the bedroom. So I'm literally feet away from where this happened, you know. So So, um, you now sleep with one eye open. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I think if, at first, you know, and it's it's like anyone that's gone through traumatic events, and we all have them. Whether it's layoffs, whether it's you know having so, losing someone you care about, whether it's you know all the challenges we have in business, and how am I going to keep this business going? Whatever it is, you you play that in your mind's eye again. But actually, as I look back on it, I was so grateful for for the actual event to occur. And people, hey, like, how? What do you mean? How can you be grateful for losing everything you own when you're in college? Because I wanted to go into advertising at the time, and I lost everything in my portfolio. Yeah. But I realized it really wasn't about what you had. It was about the people in your life. And I had people that were in the local community. I'd never met them. And they just came out of nowhere and, and helped myself and my sister. And, and it was just such an amazing thing to think in, in the middle of what seems like the worst time in your life. You've lost everything. That yeah. literally you get support from, from so many different places you couldn't even imagine. And, and for me that's been really significant in the remainder of my career because it's taught me that people can take away whatever I have. But I, I have my own inner strength that can help me turn things around and see the positives in it. So, you know, that kind of got me on this course of looking for how do you really manage your mental state? How do you learn that when a bad thing happens, there's good in it? And equally, which is a concept called equilibration, how do you look at a really good thing and see the bad things that happen because of a good thing? Because we get so infatuated with having certain things that we don't always look at both sides of any situation we're in.
1: Yeah, well, I, I do the... 10, 10, 10 rule, well, mm. a version of it, you know, will this be important in 10 seconds? Will it be important in 10 minutes? Will it be important in 10 days? Will it be important in 10 weeks? And will it be important in 10 months? And usually the answer is yes, it'll be important in 10 seconds, but in 10 minutes it'll still matter a bit, but in 10 days it's not going to matter, so I'm not going to worry about it. Um, yeah. But I must admit there never seems to be enough time to get anything done. Uh, all day today since I got up early this morning, I've got a big day today and right. I, I just feel so tense, not tense, but anxiety about how the hell am I going to get everything done today? Right. So how can you really help increase your productivity?
2: Yeah, yeah. I know mean, it's, it's a good question because I think we're faced with doing more with less time and people's expectations are so great i mean it's really funny when you look back over our careers they said at one time that when you have a fax machine or we have email they thought it was going to reduce our working week you know <laughs> <laughs> and we know if anything it has doubled,
1: you oh, know, doubled. The expectations tripled I used, right? to get, I used to get about 10 faxes now i get about 500 emails
2: right and then the thing is that once a person sends a message they really believe you've gotten that message instantaneously, yeah. and the expectation is they want to respond straight away. So I've kind of used the vacation rule for myself, because the day before I go on a vacation, I seem to be incompl- incredibly productive. I seem to say, okay, that can wait, that can wait, that can wait. What, it's kind of like your 10-10-10 rule. What yeah. do I absolutely have to put first? Yeah. What's most critical um, and also what's really important for me to take at, a look at, not just the critical things. Those critical things are going to get done, but if I do one important thing, what's really going to be important for me to work with and look at today? So if I often take that strategy when I'm really under the gun, looking at that pile of work. Probably, you go back to the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle. Yeah. If I look at 20% of that, which 20 is really going to give me the most return on my investment? Because we're not going to get to everything. Our to-do lists just get longer and longer. Yeah, but dangerous. what's really going to drive the results? Because people pay us for results, not to get things done at the end of the day. So what's going to drive my results? I worked with the gentleman a few years ago. He's kind of an interesting guy. He was a former Marine, so hated to give things up. And we were kind of uh, working on growing his business. And he said, I really want to grow this business. I'm at about $2 million right now. How could I grow it? And so as we were coaching together, I said, tell me a little bit more about how many clients you currently have. And he had this huge list of clients. hated to give anything up. Knowing he was a Marine, I kind of had to talk to that. But I also had to talk to his desire to have success. And I said, you know, which of these do you really work with? Yeah. And somehow in working together, I was able to persuade him Um to actually release some of those accounts to other people sure. and through shifting the focus, he was able to grow his business about six hundred percent, so he was doing about twelve million where he 'd been doing two million before yeah so sometimes it, it kind of is counterintuitive. We want to hold on to everything, but sometimes just releasing things and focusing on where you 're going to get the biggest results will make the biggest impact for us on a daily basis it 's just being consistent with those um, those
1: key things. Now keeping employees motivated and productive, that's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Particularly millennials who, rightfully in my view, are much more demanding of employers and and they want meaningful work and they're very, very demanding. And if you if you don't satisfy them, they leave. They'll go somewhere mm-hmm. else. So how do you keep um, employees particularly I guess the, the younger generation um, motivated and productive?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question as we start to think about it, Bob, and it really ties, does tie to the millennials. And at the same time, even can tie to older people in our market segments that we're dealing with. It's how do I reach them at a deeper level so that they're really gonna be listening to me and understanding that I can see where they're coming from. So what we've been finding is really understanding a person's values. Right. Can really make a huge difference, and it really does drive behavior. We were working with um, actually Harley Davidson a few years ago in Australia, and they were developing a new service center, and it was going to be really exciting. And we were dealing with some of the people, kind of old school people, who had a lot of newer people on their newer people joining their teams. And yeah. what they were able to do is to really coach those people to be able to really listen for what their employees were saying, and as they really listened to what values they were ha- speaking of in their conversations, just an an ongoing conversation, they could really tap into how they were going to need to position things slightly different because we often think people are so much like us that when we're looking at something, we only see that one perspective. When we can sort of step out of that perspective see the other person's perspective, position things in a way that, you know, what's really in it for them, then we can start to see that shift occur. And that happened for the, the, the gentleman that I was working with at Harley Davidson. He was able to connect with this younger guy and get him to drive incredible results. And you can even use this when you're coaching people on a management team. We were working with another team and I was doing a sales training for their group. And as we were doing the sales training, they, um, one of the executives said to me, hey, we've got this guy we want to make him a sales manager. We're not really sure about it. Would you, you know, just have a chat with him and see what you think? So I, I went over and wanted to understand his values, and I would learned a great question to understanding values is, um, you know, what's important to you? So I I kind of sat to, down with the guy and said, hey, tell me a little bit. Of, you know, when you have spare time, what do you like to do? And he said, oh, I love golf. I said, oh, really? Tell me, what is it about golf you love? So he said, well, I love golf because when I golf, it's just me. I'm in charge. There's yeah. no one else. I control what happens.
1: I well, you wish you control I what happens. Well, what was that? You, <laughs> you wish, wish you could control else? what happens.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well, I, th- I think that's even a misnomer for him. But he was. <laughs> it was really funny because we, as we had this very brief, two or three minute conversation about golf. I was able to uncover very quickly what he valued, what was important. That sure. really, he wasn't a team player. He didn't want to be in a team. He was really just an individual performer. And sometimes we, we, you know, incentivize people who get great results. We make them managers, when really being a manager isn't in, in their value set and probably won't be. Now, you could shift someone over and, and help them become better at it, but it's probably not going to be what they're going to do the best because they're really this guy was an individual performer. So, really listening and talking to values, understanding values, stepping away from our own values seems to really help in connecting with any generation.
1: Yeah, that, I think that's a really good point. You know, because a lot of people think they listen, um, and what they do is actually listen to the words, but they don't actually hear what people are saying. And um, I often say that there's a big difference between listening and hearing, um, yeah. you know, and uh, it's important to be able to hear what people are actually saying. And sometimes the words um, don't necessarily exactly reflect what they're saying.
2: Yeah, and there's two parts. I think we have to listen at that deeper level of what's going on between the lines and also at the same time, listen for the actual words they do use because their words are going to be powerful to them. So um, we've been recently coaching some people in sales and what we're finding is when they can actually repeat the person's words back to them Mm. and understand them at a deeper level but use the person's words rather than paraphrasing or using our words yeah. then it does actually resonate with the individual. And you, if you're face-to-face with them, you'll actually see the person light up as you use their words. I was actually just doing a training last week, and it happened as someone was describing their program and what was important to them, and they just lit up. And it was amazing to see that something as simple as listening, and, you know, I'm big on taking notes. I'm old school. But when you can, can use the words back, however you do that sure. and still understand that deeper level as you're talking about, that can help to make that deeper connection.
1: Well, I think, I think well, of course, that's NLP, and, and one, you know, I think NLP is one of the greatest tools that anybody can use, not only people who, yeah. who are in sales, but anybody, you know, we all need to be able to communicate better yeah. and to be able to speak um, in, the, in the same mode and terms as the person you're speaking with and reflect their, um, their, their behaviour, if that's the right word, is so critical to being able to be a good communicator.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know they always say people like we like people who are like us. And yeah, you, you know you yeah, you go You know, any event, you'll naturally gravitate to people. And you will if you think about it, why am I doing this? You'll find that there's something in them you feel drawn to. And it's something that might be like something you would do. So the more that we can kind of step out of ourselves and observe ourselves and observe others and see how can I connect with this person at a deeper level. It's like, you know, when you think about conflict and things that go on, because we've got so much conflict in the workplace or, or potentially could have. And conflict isn't necessarily negative. In fact, we want to encourage it. Yet we need to know how to deal with that. How do I encourage someone when I'm completely not in agreement with them? And yeah. how can I open it up so that we can have a an effective discussion? So it's really maybe more about when you have someone that's diametrically opposed to you, whether it's a child, a, you know, a spouse, a significant other, someone in business who, you know, you're fighting tooth and nail, how do I step back and maybe before I present an opposing view, how do I actually just say to them, hmm, wow, you know, I can understand. Now from a values, again, going back to values, from a values perspective, I see this. Let's not talk about a specific issue. You would just say, "Oh, I can understand how." and be that that empathetic person that that ties that connection with them. if if I were in your shoes, I'd feel the same way. and, and then go into what you've observed. and Maybe not give your opinion right up front, but tell them maybe a story. Stories are so powerful. In fact, when we, we deal with speakers, we encourage them. The more you can use your stories, sure. you're going to just be swept into that, and people will be swept into your stories, too. And no one can really fight our personal experience. They may not agree with it, but the fact that you've gotten them to listen, that's the real key, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it is. It's, it's time you went into Washington and had a chat to them.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I'm not sure that even the stories would solve that at some level, but it would be at least a start, and that's oh, what we're looking for,
1: dysfunctional right? non-communicators. Jeez. I mean,
2: yeah, I think at the end of the day, in, um, it was funny. I just uh, watched a movie called The Other Son, and it was about two. Two boys that were born, one was um, an Arab and one was an Israeli, and somehow the babies got switched at birth. And it was an incredible experience to see how, you know, the nature versus nurture and how we grow up and how we perceive things. Yet these two families could come together so powerfully, even though they were on completely different sides. And actually, you know, there was so much hatred between the two, but yet there was yeah. this love of family, and and that was so much deeper. So if we could just get back to some of these really critical values that drive each and every one of us and tie to that, then somehow these walls that divide us, I, you know, I believe can be really brought down.
1: Now, you and I have both spent a lot of time speaking. Um, we're both speakers, and we've both done literally thousands of presentations, but Fear of public speaking, it's a, the it's a number one fear. More people are scared of public speaking than they are of yes. dying, and I don't get that at all. Um, <laughs> ha, what tips do you have for us? I'll ask you a personal question first. I, you put me out in front of an audience of 20,000 people, and I'm great. You put me right. out in front of eight people, and I am come back to being very ordinary and very nervous. Why is that? Mm,
2: that's interesting, yes, yeah. Um, So, for some of us, um, it's being in front of the big group. It's being watched by thousands of eyes. And um, so, for some of us, that that really is a bit of a a freaking out experience. For others of us, when we get in a smaller group, even one-on-one, it can be very intimidating. But when you get into a smaller group, it's how do we really connect with them? And it's almost like melting ourselves away. So, my question for you would be, when you're in front of the twenty thousand, how do you feel when you're there? What is it about that that makes that easy?
1: I don't know. I think it's just the adrenaline. I think um, your message is, it is essentially the same. I just I just find it easier. I get I just feel more feedback, and therefore I give more. I find that if you're in a group of eight people, they tend to or ten people or something. They tend to be um, less involved. I mean, they sit there and they. They listen but it's not you're not you're not getting any build up of atmosphere or whatever. I don't know what yeah. it is.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. And, and and it's true because, you know, people will often say, you know, i you know, I can do a group of fifty or I can do a group of five, which would you rather have? And with less numbers, the speaker really does have to generate a lot more energy to get the group going. Yeah. So where can you find the adrenaline in, adrenaline in that? Where can you find the challenge? Where can you see that having eight people could be like having 20,000? And it's never going to be the same experience exactly, but if you can see the benefits. For example, when you've got 20,000, you can't go really deep with any person. Sure. But when you've got just five, you, because of all your experience, you can go so much deeper with them. And you can engage them and use their energy when you get them onto something they care about. Yeah. So maybe seeing how that can drive your adrenaline could be something to think about, too. So, you know, everyone has their, their, it's almost like a combination lock, Bob. We almost have to figure out our own unique combination to motivate us to get things going.
1: We're running, we're running very short of time. But, so we all run into disagreements at work and home yeah. and everywhere else what can we do to be more effective when we find ourselves in some form of conflict it doesn't matter what sort of conflict but in a conflict
2: oh, no yeah and I think we briefly touched on it earlier, just really finding out that point of agreement that we have with the person, really being more empathetic. we We worked with a, a huge utility company in California recently, and they were really working with their people and they had a lot of calls that would come into their center and people weren't really happy and you know they had to be able to quickly be able to really empathize and our Reaction when someone pushes us is not to say, Oh, you know, I agree with you, it, or I can understand where you're coming from. It's really to fight back. Yeah. So pushing and pushing doesn't help. Yet, people have been trained over the years to say, oh, I can understand that that you're blah, blah, blah. And they don't even mean it. So if we're not going to be authentic when we really empathize with people, it's a wasted energy. And saying words for words' sake mean absolutely nothing. So as much as we can, it's really understanding, if I was in that person's shoes, what would I feel like? Okay, they may not understand or They may understand, how can I understand this? And then how can I let them express themselves because we know so many times if you can just genuinely listen, what is that uh I think Sir Francis of Assisi said it, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And so if we can adopt more of that, we'll actually get people um perhaps over to at least being able to hear what we're saying and to take our advice and to be able to shift conversations quickly and effectively.
1: Nikki, thanks very much for being on the show today. It's been great to speak with you. Now, if you'd like to know more about Nikki, go to Nikki Vescovi, Vescovi.com. This is Bob Pritchard. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard radio show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back with you in just a moment.
0: the boardroom to you voice america business network do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible
1: business show this is the business show where there is no bullshit bullshit's not allowed we come to you every week from our hometown of los angeles the city of angels where today it's about 100 degrees fahrenheit that's about 40 degrees c but it is beautiful as you know this program's heard all around the world with a big audience in the united states and across the world thanks for listening i really appreciate your support I'm preparing at the moment to give speeches in India, Dubai, and Bahrain, and this is the segment of the show where we bring you emails from across the world, and uh, it's interesting that no matter where you are doing business in the world, you have the same issues as your peers 10,000 miles away, and this is the segment where we address some of those issues. You know, last week, I began answering an email from Jenny Gottliebson from... Boston, Massachusetts, and I ran out of time. So I thought I'd finish answering that first today. Um, Jenny asked if I had any tips on how to get more sales. And last week I mentioned that I'd seen an article during the week which had some pretty interesting advice in it, and I'll recap on a bit of that. It said that the most successful photocopier salesman didn't pitch price or speed or performance. They focused on stability, security, and how quiet the machine was. So they aimed their presentations directly at the pain points experienced by the purchaser. And this article said that exactly the same principle works in any sales situations. And it says you just need to remember five basic propositions. And essentially, it works on the basis that people don't like change. The majority of people. Sure, if you're a Steve Jobs, you live on change, or an Elon Musk, you live on change. But 99.9% of the population do not like change. They resist change. So the propositions are, first one was, originality when you're selling to somebody is overrated. Pioneers end up with nothing more than a whole bunch of arrows in their back, or the um, customer go to the competition. So it suggests that you don't invent, you innovate. You make what you have and the comfortable bits that people like working with just a little bit more interesting and powerful. Secondly, it says novelty is a nuisance. If you go in and you've got some new novelty thing, then immediately people think, oh, God, this is going to take training. We've got to to learn all about a whole new thing. We're going to make a whole bunch of mistakes. That's too hard. No one wants to go down that learning path. Tried and true, always going to win. Thirdly, no one likes to cross the chasm, especially when they're first. So short, steps forward over and over again are really going to sell for you. Number four, don't tell them how different your product or service is. They don't like different. Tell them how easy and familiar and fail-safe it is. And finally, analogies are better than apple pie. Show them anything they're doing now and then tell them not how different things are going to be, but how much they'll be more or less the same, but the results will be much better. Thank you, Jenny. I'm just going back to look at the page to see what, what your name was again. Jenny, thank you, Jenny. A copy of the book that I wrote along with Brian Tracy and John Conrad, J. Conrad Levinson, called "Marketing Magic," released it about four years ago. Will be sent to you tomorrow. I hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed putting it together. Now, this week's second email comes from Peter Duffy from Copenhagen. That's in Denmark. And Peter's email says, Bob, I'm an American now living in Denmark and loving every minute of my job with just one exception. My boss is a pain in the ass. How do I address this? Well, a lot of people have that problem. <laughs> I guess it depends on whether it really is a pain in the ass or whether it's just your perception. But um I've worked with literally thousands of companies over a long period of time. And I've come across five different types of bosses. The first is the passive aggressive. You know, it's a it's a strategy they use when they're not able to confront issues directly. So Instead, they use indirect means of criticising you and having you doubt yourself. It could be in the form of comments or actions that make you question yourself, and and then you start to make mistakes. The only way to deal with passive-aggressive behaviour is to recognise it and address it right now. You don't need to be rude or aggressive back. Simply say to the boss, look, that comment was not okay, and your rudeness just isn't necessary. This brings their behaviour out in the open and chances are that once they realise that this isn't going to work with you, they may stop. Either that or they make your life hell and you end up leaving. The second type of executive I've come across is the one with a manipulative personality. Now, this is particularly common where there's a large power difference with regards to education or authority. You may find that You're just agreeing to things without really wanting to. The problem is that this type of boss is probably not looking after your best interests. They're looking after their own. And so they'll have you running off in multiple directions and not focused on your career goals at all. This may feel like a compliment because you're taking so much responsibility and you're taking care of so much and you feel validated. But if it goes too far and you're not achieving what you need to achieve, you need to address this situation again immediately, but do it with your boss privately. Sit down, set boundaries, and say, you know, you're not going to cop this. The third kind of manager is the unfocused boss. That's probably me. (laughs) Um, Having a supervisor that lacks focus can be exhausting for all the people that report to him. This type of boss has so much energy and wants to do everything and wanted it done yesterday. They commit constantly to more projects and more projects without checking with you, the people who actually do all the work. Their positive energy is infectious and it is great to be so productive. The problem is that the priorities seem to keep changing daily. I've had bosses where the priorities seem to change hourly. And they deny that they've changed. And you know, you can't finish one task before you've got a new one. So the only way to keep up with this is to work longer hours, work weekends, take work home. Forget it. The best way to address situ- this situation is to have a talk with your boss and prepare a list of every project you're working on, where it's at, and how long you've got to spend on it till it's finished. And then when they give you something, I want you to do this. You say, well, I've got these six things and they're going to take till next Tuesday. So do you want me to start it next Wednesday or do you want to just start it now and just knock something off the list? So this type of boss usually doesn't realize the extent of your frustration until you discuss it. So it might come as a shock to them when, they finally, when you finally draw the line and say, enough's enough. The fourth kind of boss that I've encountered is the one who micromanages you know, the one, pain in the ass, always looking after your shoulder, always asking where you're at, always giving you a lot of direction and a lot of attention. You know, and if you prefer prefer to work independently, a micromanager sucks. You don't need them. They also check in with you every 15 minutes to see how you're progressing. So to survive micromanagement, go hide. Find a conference room, shut the door, Put your head down and don't be disturbed. The fifth kind of boss that I've encountered is the put-down boss. I'm sure you've all had somebody like that. This is the kind of guy I really hate dealing with the most. It's difficult to handle somebody who rules by negative reinforcement. Most people won't last long under these circumstances and who they all would want to. The best approach is to make sure you don't work for somebody like this in the first place. When you get a job, Check with the other employees. Just find out what the hell they're like. Um, You can try speaking to them. You can try being specific about when their language was inappropriate or when they crossed the line, or you can leave. No job is worth the anxiety and the stress of dealing with abuse. No matter what kind of boss you've got, the best approach is to be positive and constructive. Focus on the problem, not on the person. Focus on how to work together. Never insult the boss or management or retaliate in any way because that is the surest way never to be hired again. Thanks, Peter. A copy of my latest bestseller, it's called Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition. It'll be sent to you tomorrow, and I hope you learn as much from reading it as I learned from all those years of writing it. So let me remind you of a couple of things. If you've missed any of the shows that we've brought you since 2011, then you can go to Voice America Business Archives and listen to any of these shows, or preferably all of the shows, and listen to hundreds of great interviews with the top movers and shakers in America and throughout the world. If you're a regular listener to the show, and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, Please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website, Bob at Bob Pritchard, whoops, bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. The monthly newsletter is just finished going out, I think, for August. Send in your questions. Email me at bob at and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google And don't forget to become my contact on LinkedIn. And also, if you've got a particular guest you'd like me to interview, a particular topic you'd like me to address, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you this show since 2011. It's quite a while. It's a heap of fun bringing it to you each and every week. And I'll be with you at the same time next week, no matter where you are in the world, to address the critical issues that affect small businesses everywhere. Thanks for listening to The Bob Pritchard. No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs, and remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard, Voice America Business, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to
0: the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.